Okay. Um, Judges chapter 11. Now remember, Jephthah is from this area across the Jordan, the area of Gilead. And the circumstances that we described Wednesday night when we started his story is that he was the son of a harlot. When his father's other sons were grown, they drove him out of the house. When they drove him out of the house, uh, he becomes one who has to just live on his own, no identification with family or anything like that. And worthless fellows gather around him, the text says, and they become a mighty fighting force. They intimidate uh, many around them. As a result, when the people are facing a threat from the Ammonites, and the Ammonites dwelt in this region. When they faced a threat from the Ammonites, the Bible tells us that uh, the people of Gilead come to Jephthah and they said, we want you to lead us in battle against the Ammonites. And Jephthah's very concerned. If I lead in battle and the Lord gives victory, will you make me head of the people? And they said, yes. We will make you head. And they they go through a ceremony, it seems, somewhat, in verse 11. And uh, the people make him their head and chief over them. Now, what we'll see today as we pick up in verse 12. First of all, Jephthah tries to work out the situation with the king of Ammon, who's never named in the text. He's going to try to work that situation out diplomatically. That will fail. Then he will go uh, to, he will go, they will go to war. And in that midst of the war, Jephthah vows that if you give me victory, Lord, whatever comes out of my house first, I will give it to you. That's the thing that Jephthah is most remembered for. But let's look at these verses from verses 12 through 28. And this is a correspondence between Jephthah and the king of Ammon. You notice it's often said that one group sends messengers to the other. Uh, And that is used in verse 12, 13, 14, uh, 17, and verse 19. So messages are coming back and forth from the king of Ammon and Jephthah. Verse 12. Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the sons of Ammon, saying, What is between you and me that you have come to me to fight against my land? The king of the sons of Ammon said to the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and the Jordan, therefore return them peaceably. But Jephthah sent messengers again to the king of the sons of Ammon. And they said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the sons of Ammon. For when they came up from Egypt, and Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh, then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land, But the king of Edom would not listen. And they also sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. 
Then they went through the wilderness and around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and came to the east side of the land of Moab. And they count beyond the Arnon. And they did not enter the territory of Moab. For the Arnon was the border of Moab. And Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, the king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people and camped in Jahaz and sought and fought with Israel. The Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel. And they defeated them. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of the country. And they possessed all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and from the wilderness as far as the Jordan. Since the Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Amorites from before his people Israel, are you then to possess it? Do you not possess what Chemosh your God gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God has whatever the Lord our God has driven out before us, we will possess it. Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive with Israel or did he ever fight with against them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Ror and its villages and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by making war against me. May the Lord, the judge, judge between me, between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. And the king of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message that Jephthah sent him. So, long reading. Uh, thank you for listening closely. The king of the sons of Ammon doesn't speak very long in this, does he? Jephthah, through his messengers, does most of the speaking. And when Jephthah says, what is this? Why is this? You have come up against me. What does? What is the answer here? What does the king of Ammon say? You took my land. This land belongs to me. From the Arnon, which was at the south of this area marked out for Reuben, would have been about the location of the Arnon River. The Jabbok is this line through the territory of Gad. And said, all of this territory belongs to me, and now you need to return it. Well, in Jephthah's answer, and Jephthah's answer is divided into a few parts, his main point is to show that verse 15 is true. Verse 15, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the sons of Israel. Now, Paul asked the question about to whom does Jephthah, who does he credit his victories to? In these cases, who does he who say gave Israel the land? The Lord. The Lord. The Lord gave him the land. Now, not only does Jephthah mention the Lord giving him the land, but also in verse 15, 
he mentions he mentions what other nation? Moab. Mo- he mentions Moab more frequently than he does Ammon. Now, be thinking about that. Why is that? Why does he mention the king of Moab? Why is he such an important part of this dialogue when he's nowhere to be found? And Moab's territory would have been more to the south of Reuben. Ammon's territory more to the east. Sometimes these boundaries weren't always drawn tightly. As you see right here in this account, because he's claiming, no, all this land really should belong to us as the Ammonites. But the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, all of these dwell near Israel's land, particularly in the Transjordan. Now, in this answer that Jephthah gives in these passages, in these answers, in verses 15 through 18, he first refers to the fact that God did not allow Israel to go through Edom or Moab. Didn't allow Israel to go through Edom or Moab. Some of this serves as a good review of Israelite history to this point, doesn't it? Um, So the people came to the king of Edom. They sent messengers to the king of Edom and they said, let us pass through your territory. And he says, no. They sent messengers to the king of Moab. And he says, no. Now, where do we read about those things? Do you remember? Okay, you read about him in Deuteronomy 2. We'll come back to Deuteronomy 2 in just a moment. Where else do we read of those? We also read of this kind of thing in Numbers 20. And I was highlighting that because of our recent reading in Numbers. But in Numbers 20, in our daily Bible reading, in Numbers 20, verses 14 through 21, here Israel does not go through the territory of Edom. And so this is recorded here in Numbers 20. And he refers to it here. You took away our land. He says, no, we didn't take away your land. We even asked permission just to pass through the territory of Edom, just to pass through the territory of Moab, and they did not consent. Now, Deuteronomy 2, Christy mentioned just a moment ago. What reason does Deuteronomy 2 give for God telling Israel, leave Edom leave Moab and leave Ammon alone. By the way, notice Ammon, the main controversy with Ammon here, they don't even merit a mention in this section. But what, why is it that God says leave them alone? Okay, they are relatives. They are kin and I have given them their land. Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 2, verses 4 and 5, you shall not pass through the territory of your brothers, 
their family, as Sarah says. You shall not pass through the territory of your brothers, the sons of Esau, who live in Seir. And they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not provoke them, for I will not give you any of their land, even as little as a footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. Now, the Edomites were descendants of whom? Esau. 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 You read that in Genesis 36. They were descendants of Esau. Look at Deuteronomy 2 in verse 9. Deuteronomy 2 verse 9. The Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab, nor provoke them to war. I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given Ar as a possession to the sons of Lot. Now look at verse 19. Verse 19 mentions Ammon, which doesn't even receive a mention in this section of Judges, 20, uh, Judges 11. But it says, when you come opposite the sons of Ammon, do not provoke them, do not harass them, nor provoke them, for I will not give you any of the land of the sons of Ammon as a possession, because I've given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. Now, if you were listening closely to that, you know the Moabites and the Ammonites were descendants of Lot. Descendants of Lot in Genesis 19. So because of their relationship to Israel, God says to Israel, you don't take their land because their, I have given them their land just as surely as I have given the Canaanites, uh, given you the land of Canaan. Now, that doesn't mean that Ammon and Moab did right by this, did they? They didn't do right in showing this kind of lack of hospitality to Israel. Um, this is what the text says in Deuteronomy chapter um, 23, verses 3 through 4. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Peter of Mesopotamia to curse you. So they did not meet you with bread and water. You know, this relative thing goes both ways, doesn't it? Israel doesn't invade their territory because they are relatives to them. But the fact they were relatives should have meant that Moab and Ammon greeted them with bread and water. But they won't even let them pass through their territory. So he reviews Numbers 20. He reviews Deuteronomy 2, particularly verse 5, verse 9, verse 19. So we see, however hard the king of Ammon would have been to convince on this particular subject, Jephthah's right here, isn't he? I mean, Jephthah's, Jephthah's got his history down pretty well. Why wouldn't he include that note that God says Ammon... Don't pass through their territory. Why would he include that? 
think that, I mean, they should already know that. And by not mentioning it, like, you make the next connection, maybe. Okay. It could be. Now, honestly, I asked that not knowing. I'm, I'm looking for you all to fill in some gaps, okay? Uh, but but that, that's, that's a possibility, Sarah. Another possibility, too, is maybe he is leaving them out. Maybe he's leaving them out because, listen, hey, Moab's got a claim to this land before you. If you want to try to take this land away, you need to stand in line. Because Moab, Moab has got a bigger claim to it than you have, and so he doesn't even deal with them. I, I don't know. I don't know if that is uh, the answer. Uh, and I appreciate Sarah's thoughts as well. Anyone else right there with a thought? David? Well, and I think we'll get to this in the next section, but it's like, you know, Israel didn't start this fire or this fight. Yes. They were, they were content to not do that and Ammon in particular came out to fight them. Okay. And so is that that's stated in Numbers twenty? I'm forgetting that statement, but it may have been Yeah, well, uh, that's in Deuteronomy two. Okay. I know it says in Numbers twenty that Edom came out to fight them. That Edom in Numbers twenty in verse twenty in Deuteronomy 2, um, where does it... Well, it was Sihon. So, yeah, Sihon will come out. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, we're about to get to that part. Right. In verses 19 through 22, he reviews the dealings with Sihon. Now, who is the man, who is the king almost always mentioned in connection with Sihon? Ah. Uh, doesn't marry to mention here. Now, why? The reason is because Sihon's territory is the disputed territory between the Arnon and the Javid. That is Sihon's territory. Og's territory is north of that. That's uh, the, the northern part of Gad and the tribe of Manasseh. Ammon is not contesting that land right now. So because they're not contesting that land, there's no reason to bring Og's name into it. But like David said... Israel doesn't start the fight. Israel first wanted just to pass through Sihon's territory in verse 19. And they ask nicely, please let us pass through your land to our place. Well, Sihon is suspicious in verse in verse. 20, he did not trust Israel, and so he gathers all his people to fight against Israel. Who gives victory in this case? The Lord. The Lord, verse 21. The Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the land hand of Israel. Now, one of the points that Deuteronomy 2 makes about Sihon it makes the point that his cities were well fortified and uh, strong. The point that the text is making is here was a formidable foe, a formidable foe that God gave Israel victory over because of their trust in him and their confidence in him. This is the same kind of enemy that led Israel to turn back and to refuse 
to go into Canaan. But God gave Israel victory over them. They were an enemy with high walls and they had strong people and yet God gave Israel victory if they trusted and put confidence in Him. That account of Sihon and Og can be used for so many different purposes. But this territory of Sihon and Og or this territory of Sihon is the disputed area here. And he says, listen, this is the story. The story is we were just wanting to pass through. Sihon came out ready to meet us. The Lord gave us victory over them. And so we possessed all his territory from the Arnon in the south to the Javik, which was the northern end of his territory. And you can see how waterways make good good divisions um, from one um, boundary to another. Have you ever thought about how many states have as their boundaries some river? I mean, it's just, it's really amazing. But, but it's a good boundary because there's not as lot of dispute about, about that. Um, that means a lot of bridges as you're entering new states. But... Um, Nonetheless, um, Tommy, so yes. I've got a question. Do you yes. think the Lord did this to give the Israelites confidence uh, before going in to take the promised land? I, I think that is the way Deuteronomy 2 uses it. Now, this happens after the spies have brought back the bad report and they're wondering 40 years. But that is the way Moses uses it in Deuteronomy 2. And then in 3, 1 through 11, Deuteronomy 3, 1 through 11, he mentions Og. So yes, that is the way he uses it in context. Listen, you're going to fight enemies stronger and mightier than you, but you've done that before. And I've given you victory against enemies that are stronger and mightier than you. And this should, this should encourage you in the future in your conflicts. You know, that, that's one thing we need to try to do. We find ourselves in the midst of a conflict. And there doesn't look like there's any way out, whatever it is. Remember all the times you've been in that situation before. And the Lord helped you. Now, we can criticize Israel for forgetting that, but how many times do we forget that in the midst of our circumstances? Remember all the times He's delivered us. Remember all the times He's blessed us. Let that be an incentive for faith in the present and the future. So, what other things do you all have? Any thoughts? Okay. How in the world do you deal with verses 23 and 24? And I think this is um, where uh, Paul says, what's the argument Jephthah makes that the, wor- that the world would have understood? The Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Ammonites, Amorites before his people Israel, are you then to possess it? I made a mistake there. I said Ammonite. But that's that's a very important difference to make in this context. The Ammonites are claiming that they have the right to the land. 
He said, the Amorites owned it before. You, you, you didn't even have it then. The Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Amorites from before his people Israel. Are you then to possess it? Do you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gave you to possess? So whatever God has driven out before us, we will possess it. Okay? Battle of the gods. Battle of the gods, yes. Um, now, Chemosh, he mentions Chemosh, your God. Um, Chemosh is generally associated in the Old Testament with what group of people? The Moabites, generally with Moab, and the God of Ammon is described as Molech. Uh, I believe 1 Kings 11.5 as it's detailing Solomon's idolatry may, may be an example where you can get that. Someone get there, and I'm forgetting what exactly that text says, but 1 Kings 11, 5. Now, but Paul says this is an argument that people in the ancient Near East would have understood. People in the ancient Near East would have been what religiously? Polytheistic. Polytheistic. They would have believed in many gods. You just take what your God gives you, and we'll take what our God has given us. Does that in and of itself demand that Jephthah believe that these gods were real? Doesn't in and of itself believe it. But we'll see later. I don't think we should be pressed to defend everything Jephthah does or says. But I, I, I don't think that this necessarily acknowledges that. I think it's just an argument, kind of like Paul said, that, that they would understand. It is... You take what Chemosh your God gives you, and we'll take what Yahweh our God gives us. Now, do you may find 1 Kings 11? Debbie, I see you've got that open. What does it say? For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Okay. Milcom and Molech would be in the same basic spelling in, um, in Hebrew. I think Milcom would be maybe a plural spelling of that. Uh, but Chemosh is somewhere associated with the Moabites, but the verse is... Uh, did you still get 1 Kings 11 open? Maybe it's around verse 7 or something. I'm thinking, I was thinking it was yeah, in seven, that context. Verse 7 does yeah. mention Chemosh as God of the Moabites. You know, this may be too. Now you know how... You know how... Sometimes in the midst of even civil conversation, there could be a barb thrown in. This might be a way to kind of mock the king of Ammon. Chemosh is your God. Um, and it's a way too maybe just to highlight the fact you don't have any right to this possession. Now he also mentions another king here. In verse 25, in 11.25, he mentions Balak. Now, what do you know about Balak? Balak, Balaam, and Okay, he's the one who hires Balaam 
to curse Israel, Numbers 22 through 25. Did, and he says, did Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, did he fight with Israel and try to take back their land? Well, no, he was terrified by them. And he says, they're going to lick up all the ground around here. And he did try to curse them, but he didn't try to fight them. So I, get, I don't know what the moral of that story is. But the point is, here are kings. This was when those events happened. If that territory was Moabite, the Moabites' land, why didn't he right then take a stand? Now, Jephthah says, 300 years later, you're going to come along and you're going to say, no, no, that was ours? He says, that, no, no, that doesn't work. But one of the most profound verses of the book is Jephthah, whatever his spiritual status was, he said, May the Lord, the judge, judge between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. Now he's talking about his God here. He's talking about Yahweh. And he realizes that in this conflict between the sons of Ammon and the sons of Israel, the ultimate judge of all nations and all peoples is Yahweh. May the Lord... The judge, judge between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. Well, the king of Ammon doesn't listen. What, what questions do you have there? What thoughts do you all have? Ryan? Oftentimes when you're having an argument, um, there would be multiple points you disagree on. And so you'll just grant someone, let's just assume that Chemosh is a god and he has a right to this authority. I don't even think the imaginary Chemosh would want you to do this. Um, yeah. Not necessarily yeah. on the same page about that. Yes, that's, that's right. It's, it's, not, it's not that they it's, it's, that's not the area of dispute. You know, the area of dispute is whose land is this? And uh, so I, I agree. It doesn't necessarily imply that he would accept the reality of Chemosh here. Debbie? He didn't accept the reality that it was never their land in the first place, right? It was the Am Ammonites' land, not the Amorites. Right? Okay. So the Amorites. I have to get my. I have to always go back and look, yeah. right? So the Ammonites are saying it's our land, but it never was. It was the Amorites' yeah. land. That's what he said. So he didn't get. They didn't accept that any more than they would accept that it was the gods. Your God gave you your land. Our God gave you yes. our land. Yes. Yes. Well, they they probably they probably would have accepted that part, but Jephthah doesn't necessarily. You're saying like here, this is a part the King of Ammon doesn't accept, and here's a part. That, that Jephthah may just have used for argument's sake. And um, so, and that, that may be all that it is. Well, how are we to judge Jephthah? We'll see in the upcoming verses. But in verse 29, the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. And so he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. Then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And Mizpah of Gilead, he went on to the sons of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's. And I shall offer it up as a burnt offering. So the Spirit of the Lord comes on him. 
The Spirit of the Lord. We have seen that previously with Othniel in 310, with Gideon in 634, now here with Jephthah. We're going to find it more frequently with Samson than any other judge. But the Spirit of the Lord comes on him. He calls his army. He makes this vow. This is what he's most famous for. If you will give me victory, then whatever comes out of my house, um, then I will give it to you. Paul asks, why may he have felt a need to make a vow? Let me ask it this way. Same question, basically. One commentary I was looking at gave three other vows in Scripture like this. If you do this, then I will. Can you think of any of them? They're in the Old Testament, all in the Old Testament. I think a couple of them that you will think of quite readily. Uh, if you do this, Lord, then I will do the following. Okay, one of them is Hannah in the book of Samuel. If then vow, she says, Lord, if you will give me a son, then I will give him to you all the days of his life. First Samuel 1, verse 9. David? Uh, well, I was going to say that, but I think Jacob. Jacob does the same thing. You know, if you lead me back here, uh, I believe it's around verse 18 that he begins making this then this will be the house of the Lord and I will surely give you a tenth of all. Those are the two I expected you to get. Okay. There's one other one that's not as obvious. Well, it may be as obvious, but maybe it's a whole nation. So in Numbers 21, in the first part of the verse, verses 1 through 3, they vow, the people vow, Lord, if you give us this city, we will totally destroy it. And so these are three similar type vows in the Old Testament and maybe this was a way uh, my, my answer to the question maybe this is Jephthah's way of assuring that he will receive an answer um, and uh, but he makes this vow Lord if you give me victory uh, when I return in peace then I will offer the first thing out of my house The Bible says in verse 32, the Lord gave them into his hand. Where do we see, we've tried to emphasize the Lord's hand in the book of Judges. And here in Judges 11, you see the idea of the Lord's hand. You see it in verse 21. The Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel. He mentions it in verse 23 uh, about the Lord giving us this land. He mentions in verse 27, the Lord asked a judge. And now in verse 32, the Lord gave him victory. The Lord gave him victory and he struck the enemy with a very great slaughter and subdued the enemy. Now that word subdued that's used there in verse uh, 21, or excuse me, verse 33, verse 33, 11, 33. That word subdued that's used, it's only used about 10 times in the Old Testament. 
But we found it in Judges 3.30, Judges 4.23, Judges, I believe it's 8.28. Yes. And now here. Point is, it's not used often, but this is a judge's word to describe defeating the foe. They subdued, they were subdued, passive, by the sons of Israel. Okay. Verse 34. How is his vow going to play out? Well, when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourine, with dancing. Now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had neither father nor daughter. And it came about when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low and you are among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord and I cannot take it back. And she said, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said. Since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. Now again, there's another reference to the Lord's hand in this battle. Verse 36. Verse 37. She said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that if I go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. Then he said, go. So he sent her away for two months and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. And it came about at the end of two months that she returned to her father who did to her according to the vow which he had made. And she had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel. And the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in a year. Where else do you see women greeting victors in battle in the Bible? Yeah, particularly David and the women came out to greet him and Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands in 1 Samuel 18. You find that kind of thing with Miriam and though all the people have been crossed over the Red Sea but Miriam and the women are singing and playing their uh, tambourines and rejoicing in the Lord's victory and here his daughter comes out to meet him. I will offer the first thing that comes out of my house to meet me. And the same two key words, come out and meet, that are used in verse 31 in his vow, are used to describe what his daughter does in verse 34. She came out to meet him. And so there's no question who is the first person out of his house. And immediately, this victory is turned to defeat. And he tears his clothes, and he is grieving. The daughter here appears in a pretty heroic light. 
My father, do to me as you have vowed, for the Lord has avenged you of your enemies. Now I say that's heroic, but human sacrifice is not a good thing. Now, I'll tell you, I do believe that he sacrificed her as a burnt offering. You might say, but that wasn't right. Oh, we haven't read anything in Judges before that wasn't right? <laughs> of course it wasn't right. But I think it happened. You know, it, 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 uh, I think we've read all kinds of things in this book that shouldn't have happened. As one says, when you write history, you write what happened, not what should have happened. And this is what, what is, is done here, I think. Because it says, he did to her according to her his vow in verse 39. She says, do to me as you have vowed, um, as you have said, verse 36. I, I, I do think he does. Now, some of you may disagree with that, and, and, and that's fine if you want to, to state that. Um, well, first of all, I'll let you state that, but I will tell you the reason why what I think it may show that he does that. Um, David, I know in the past you've expressed a little disagreement with that. I don't know if that's still your position. I don't know if you, you've been enlightened by this week in the study of, of Judges 11. I but, think there's some good arguments by boys. Okay. But I will, uh, I will offer up the, uh, the opposing opinion. Uh, his vow, he says, when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, you know, whatever comes out of my house, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. The word and there, uh, I'm told, could easily be translated or. And I, you know, I even asked Tommy about that, and, and he yeah. agreed that, yes, that could be translated or. So, to me, his intent was, if it's an animal, I'm going to offer it up as a burnt offering. If it's a person, this person shall be the Lord's. Okay. Uh, and some other things that, to me, lend credence to that position. His daughter asked to let me go for two months to the mountains that I may weep because of my virginity. If she was going to be given to the Lord, she would never be the wife of a husband, never bear children. Uh, and that was a cause for weeping. But if she was about to be offered up as a burnt offering, I would think she would be saying, I'll weep because my life is about to end. Yes. And... Uh, and then when it says in the last verse that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, uh, the word commemorate seems to have you know, some connection with they went to you know, be with her to kind of try to support her in this. Yeah. Now, uh, I'll, I'll have to look up that because I did not check out that word. Yeah. So, and, and those are uh, some of the arguments. Okay, uh, okay. Uh, another one that I uh, ran across recently that, given everything else Jephthah did, probably doesn't, you know, make a whole lot of 
you know, difference. But all the offerings, the burnt offerings to the Lord were males. This would have been a female. And I don't know that we have any female offerings. Is it, isn't it all? Well, in, in, in Leviticus 1, you do have male burnt offerings. That is, that yeah. is the case. Yeah, I think it's... That I is the case. I don't know. Yeah, I, don't know Jeff, I don't know if somebody's willing to sacrifice their daughter and says, wait, wait. If it was a boy, we could. But no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that Jeff is going to be thinking like that. Now, I will. Maybe I, he knew he didn't have. He knew he didn't have his son. I will say, and, and, I, and I do understand, like, like when Hannah says, I'll give your child to the Lord all the days of his life. That's not as a sacrifice. Right. And, and, but at the same time, she never did speak of a burnt offering there, too. And, and I, I know what David said about, it seems like if she's, if she's going to bewail her virginity, she's got bigger problems than that right now. But, 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 but maybe, too, that just shows us, and, and this is not necessarily right or wrong, but this is just a vast difference maybe between their culture and ours in that what was the biggest thing she has to grieve about? That she's not going to get to marry and have children. And Jephthah kind of inadvertently is cut off his whole line. You know, when Abraham was called, sacrifice your son, your only son whom you love, God stopped his hand and God says because of that I'm going to multiply your descendants. Here, Jephthah, in offering his daughter as a burnt offering, and I'm assuming that interpretation right now, he is cutting off all his descendants. So it's kind of the exact opposite of Abraham's case. God was calling Abraham. Jephthah makes this up on his own. And God stops Abraham. Jephthah seems, seems to go through it. But, but, now, there's some good in the fact that the focus on women is not just, there's some good and bad on the fact that she's not just to marry and not just to bear children. And the good is when a woman, through no fault of her own, remains single, she remains single. There's not a stigma with that. In our, that that's, that's a good thing. The bad thing as we know in our society, and this is my Mother's Day gift to you all, <laughs> is it can lead to a devaluing of motherhood and childbearing. It can lead to downplaying those things and making those lesser things. That, that's not what's important. It's important to go out there and make money and to... No, it is. What's important is children know the Lord. That's what's important. That's the most important thing. Now, uh, so there's some good and bad that goes with that. I have a question. Yes. So, um, when Jephthah made this vow, 
What did he expect to come out and greet him? I think it was his mother-in-law. I just think <laughs> that maybe that she was going to come out first to greet him. But no, you know, generally you do not find in the Old Testament you don't find animals coming out to greet people. Yeah, like like, you know, my dog's going to run out. Oh no! So now the the, the word that is used. The word that is used can refer to people. It can refer to animals as well. can refer to evil. But think about this. What even if that was an unclean animal? That wouldn't have been an acceptable sacrifice either. But the reason, this is, the re, this is what I think is the reason. You know, you see Jephthah mentioning Chemosh before. That may have been an intentional mistake. It may have been unintentional. It may be he mixes up all Chemosh and Molech and even mixes up Yahweh. <clears throat> He's worshiping Yahweh as God. But what is significant about Molech in the Old Testament? What do you remember about Molech? Human sacrifice. He's offering, he's worshiping the Lord like people worship Molech. This shows us the confused age of the judges. And maybe the fact Jephthah's daughter agrees to this so readily, maybe it's heroic, but maybe it shows us she shares in all these misconceptions that their ideas are so confused, they think God really wants this. They think God really wants human sacrifice. And in that in the in pagan religion, that was the ultimate of sacrificing. Because what could you give bigger than that? Has the worship of God become like that? Oh, when worship to God breaks down, a culture breaks down. Think about it. God bless, and we'll. I wanted to get to 12.